Welcome to the FN Rad Snowboarding Podcast. I'm Eric Charlson. Wow, this is a great way to climb mountains and come down, you know. For our reception, our Vulcan buddies brought acid. I was dropping in and snaking people and causing shit. I remember calling on the radio and I'm like, Brushy, where are you? You know, Greg would do the tricks. He was kind of like the Tony Hawk of snowboarding. I mean, people just really gravitated to the backcountry. I liked Greg, but he didn't really care for me too much because I was a little shithead. Keith Duckboy Wallace was a pro rider for Burton when their freestyle pro team consisted of four key riders. Duckboy, Brushy, Mike Jacoby, and Craig Kelly. And as a member of the product development team, he helped usher in Burton's dominance in the early 90s. I mean, the first board I ever rode was a Snurfer. I guess it was one of the, the first uh, Brunswick, you know, just tow rope front. And my local mailman had two of them, and he loaned me one of them because he always saw me skateboarding in the neighborhood, so that was uh, that would be the first board I ever rode. <laughs> I graduated high school in 88, so that would have been, shit, I would have been in junior high. Like, <laughs> I rode for Chuck. I rode for a company called Glacier Snowboards. There's a throwback for you. Glacier Snowboards was in Reno, Nevada. The guy, and his name actually, interesting enough, was Hal Burton, and he was producing boards in 84. 485 right in there that were 100% ski construction, full cap construction, centered bases, you know, steel edges, the whole thing. The boards weighed like six pounds. They were like so ahead of, they actually were the predecessor built in the same factory where uh, the GNU boys started making all their stuff. There was definitely a time when we were riding for Glacier and GNU came out and we were basically riding the exact same board with two different graphics on it. And no one knows who Hal Burton is anymore. Like, he was a family man and did the snowboarding thing for a while and uh, just kind of faded into obscurity. So then I went to ride for Chuck. You know, part of the reason I kind of got hooked up was because of Ken and, and Dave and, you know, Carl, all the Achenbach boys, and traveling with them. And so I started riding for Chuck, and then I wanted to go to all the big races. You know, I wanted to go to the World Championships, and, you know, I qualified for all, all the events, but I didn't have the, you know, Chuck didn't have the money to send me, so he actually turned me over to Jake. <laughs> when I first started, that was right during the Sims-Burton transition for Craig. I almost rode for Tom, too, but that didn't pan out. But since I was from the Northwest, I was sent to train with Craig, and it was Craig's determination, really, whether or not I would be on the Burton team or not. So I went and lived with Craig, rode at Mount Baker, and Craig was my mentor throughout my whole time at Burton. So yeah, it was Craig, me, Jacoby, and Brushy. Like we were the, the four musketeers for a long time. I lived in Mount Vernon with Craig and Kelly Joe at that time. You know, it was every year we'd do early season at Mount Baker. So I lived in Glacier and then, uh, you know, ride Mount Baker. And then I'd go out on tour all year. And then I'd come back to Idaho and teach for either Ken or, I mean, I taught for Craig at Whistler Blackham for all the years of Craig Kelly's camp. And then I'd go to, to Norway, to Strin, to teach over there for Craig's camp. I did that for nine years. <laughs> go up to Blackcomb, ride every day on the glacier, get off at one, go down to Squamish and climb till dark and come back and deal with my campers and yeah, go to uh, go to Norway. That was did that for a lot of years. <laughs> Mike Jacoby had told me that Keith gave him the Joker nickname, so I asked him if there was a story behind that. Um he gave 
made himself the Joker by being a Joker all the time. That was his own doing. Mike was just always like life was a game for Mike. So everything he ever did was he rode hard. He was very serious about his riding and being an athlete. But he's the guy that would sneak over while you were sleeping on the plane and tie your shoelaces together for, you know, I mean, just anything. I mean, he was just constantly playing practical jokes. So I may have called him that, but he earned it. I also asked the origin of the Duck Boy nickname. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, a culmination of standing 15 and negative 6, that makes you look like you're standing like a duck. I think that's probably where it started. Being a good Idaho hillbilly, being a duck hunter, that may have something to do with it. And maybe big lips. In the late 80s and early 90s, stance options were severely limited by insert hole patterns on the boards. I asked Keith how he managed to ride a duck stance on old boards that didn't accommodate that. We didn't ride anything stock back then. Stock didn't exist. They also didn't allow for 20-plus inch stances. You know, that's the, the advantage of working for the leader in snowboarding is you can make anything you wanted anytime. So most of the time we were riding boards, they were the next year's boards with this year's graphics on it almost always. I mean, it was pretty rare that we'd be riding stock equipment at all, boots, bindings. They may look like it, but... Burton was smart enough to allow their team to drive product production, you know. Team rider input was a key factor in Burton Snowboards emerging as the industry leader. I asked Keith if he had worked on specific products that he remembered. Oh, shit. (laughs) Anything from about 1986 through 2000. (laughs) Every airboard, every Craigboard, every set of bindings, every boot, all of it. I mean, I was on the R&D team that whole time, so having the opportunity to work with, you know, Craig, Craig was a master of product development and the guys that we got to work with at Burton were incredible engineers and designers and were so open to working with us that it was just a cool collaborative time to be able to have an opportunity to work with those people. And, and the sport was progressing so fast that all the brands and all the riders were, you know, kind of feeding off each other as far as ideas and moving the sport and tricks and coming from different the skate background or the surf background or or like for us like it was more the backcountry and mountaineering background just there's a lot of excitement a lot of different ideas during that time when we all came on burton was an east coast company so it was perceived as a race company and it was a bunch of east coast guys from vermont and if you're from the west coast and a powder rider you rode barfoot or you rode sims i mean that was the west coast we weren't looked at as a freestyle leader but that sure changed over the next couple of years with Brushy and me and Craig and Jacoby and Jason Ford. And we started kicking people's asses. <laughs> so that was a massive change in the way people perceived the brand. You know, so then we had the domination of the, of the racers because they understood ski racing. They came from the East Coast with hard conditions and hard snow. They knew how to build race boards. You had, you know, the European angle because of, you know, Bauer and and Nerva and all of our European guys. And then you bought Craig and all of a sudden they started building boards that performed for freestyle and got behind that movement. And it it progressed Burton as a brand. Jake's a smart, smart guy. He's not a dummy. He understood from the get-go to let the athletes drive product development. And if if you're true to that, then the brand will do well. And he followed that. Yeah, I mean, he surrounded himself with people that were doing things totally differently. The product designers and the marketing guys that he had working for him and 
the way that they ran their team and, you know, the youth program. Like, again, when we were teaching summer camp, all the young kids came to camp. So while we were all coaching, the little freaking grommets of the time, like Terry A. Hawkinson and those kids, we were training them when they were seven and eight. You know, same thing with Sean White. He stayed with me at Whistler at camp because he couldn't come because he was too young to be unaccompanied. So, you know, we got to watch those kids come up. We saw the future of what the sport would be because we taught them every summer. And to watch them, you know, teach them a trick and have them one-up you three hours later, that was pretty amazing to watch, you know. But that was the kind of progression that the things were happening at that time. So it's different back then, though, because there were no snowboarders. So there were, you know, three guys at your local mountain that had a snowboard. So... You know, we competed not for glory and fame and things like that. It was we wanted to go to other mountains and see other riders, and it was way more of a an opportunity to go meet other people in the sport than what people think about as competing. You know, we all did everything. People were like, oh, well, were you a freestyle rider, a half pipe? I'm like, uh, we did everything. <laughs> Muggles, giant slalom, slalom, downhill, whatever. It didn't matter what it was because. You know, you were at a contest. You did every event that was there. We didn't have prima donnas. Yes, I'm just a half-pipe rider. <laughs> we didn't have that luxury. We traveled with nine boards, and we rode downhill and slalom and GS and a mobile contest, and we rode freestyle, and you did everything. That was just the way. I asked if teaching kids like Sean White to snowboard gave Duck Boy the foresight to see snowboarding getting into the Olympics and becoming the mainstream sport it is today. No, I, I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I don't think that we ever expected it to, nor I think deep down for people like me, I don't think we ever wanted it to. I mean, snowboarding was was never designed to be that, you know. It, it was the anti-establishment back in the day, and it was about riding with your friends and, you know, one-upping your friends doing tricks. You know, when it gets to the point where it's, although a lot more dangerous and a lot more extreme, to use the most horrendous term ever, when it turns into a spin contest and all they do is drop into the pipe and do 1080 to 1080 to 1080 to 1080 to 1080, back to back to back spin fest, you might as well just get on, on ice skates. I never saw it as being that competitive sport. I was sh- genuinely shocked when, when it started looking like it was going to go to the Olympics. I was really surprised. I, I didn't think it would. It's a good and a bad thing, you know. It's brought a lot of notoriety. We saw it when it started blowing up and it was everywhere. And when it goes from never seeing a snowboard anywhere, even on a mountain, and then it's every commercial and every, from the Wrigley commercials to everything, you know, and every corporation wants to throw a snowboard into their commercial somehow to try to appeal to that group. For us that were riding in the early 80s, it's kind of lost a bit of its luster at that point. (laughs) Before Burton was successful as a company, they had to create a market. So the first order of business was spend your own money, travel to all the ski areas, and teach them about snowboarding. Teach the ski uh, school about snowboarding. Go to the rental shops and, and try to explain to them what's going to happen in the future. And You know what I mean? Like You had to create a place to even sell your products to. It, it wasn't just like, again, that some of these kind of brands that came on after the big push is that, okay, now the market's established. I just have to create a product and sell into it. Well, they had a lot easier road than the early pioneers did with Chuck and Tom and, you know, you know, there, there were quite a few companies, you know, that were participants in building the sport, not just capitalizing off of the fad 
that was snowboarding at the time. My dad drove me around, to, drove me to Canada, drove me to wherever I wanted to go. I mean, all the events that I went to, the old, you know, 86, 87 Boreal events, all Norquay and Sunshine Village and, you know, all over Oregon and Washington. I mean, he drove me everywhere to go to those events. So I got lucky because I got hooked up pretty early that I, that I had an opportunity to go and travel. Yeah, I feel incredibly fortunate that Burton, for me, I mean, I spent pretty much my youth, you know, snowboarding one way or another between summer camp and riding in the winter. That was 15 years of my life straight. So I never went to college, but that working for Burton, and then I went in-house, you know, I worked in-house in Vermont, and then I was a sales rep for Burton. So that was college for me. I I learned, you know, business marketing and R&D and product development and branding and finance and sales, all that I learned at Burton. (laughs) The influence of Craig Kelly on snowboarding is still being felt to this day. Burton's R&D factory is named after him, and the Kelly Mystery Air was the first rideable reissue from Burton. Keith and Craig were close friends for years, and I asked Keith if he could talk a bit about his friend. Even if you were rode for a competitive company or whatever, when you have someone that holds themselves to a higher standard of professionalism and and not behavior because he was you think the joker was the joker craig was the biggest joker of all of them but he was smart enough that he never got caught we all got caught he never did so you know you can't help but respect him i mean it is what it is i mean he was the man he was you know elmer was the man and whether you liked it or not there was a part of you that aspired to be that guy or ride like that or be that professional, without a doubt. If anyone tells you in our sport that they didn't look up and respect Craig, anyone says they didn't, they're lying, for sure. Craig dug me out multiple times, at least twice when I for sure should have been dead, for sure. Like, without a doubt, I was already pretty much counting the minutes, you know, and Craig dug me out. So for Craig to die in a slide, it just wasn't, I couldn't see it. It took me years. Until the day that we filmed Let It Ride. I'm getting all choked up. (laughs) It was just a crazy, crazy deal. But I remember being there and having them turn on the camera, and they asked that question. Do you remember where you were the day Craig died? And I lost it. Like, for whatever reason, it just all, like, came back at that moment. In in general, I think they did a good job, and, and I was pretty proud of the finished product and I don't think it did Craig or Craig's life a disservice you know trying to take on the heavy load of trying to retell someone's story is tough so I thought they did a good job. Keith is one of the many early greats of snowboarding that pursued a career elsewhere. Everyone's got a different threshold for change. I mean imagine being one of the four key riders for Burton. I just looked on their website they've got 19 pros on their trim down team. Imagine getting to bounce your ideas off Jake in a helicopter on a team photo shoot. Imagine going to a resort and teaching the resort staff what snowboarding is. How do you get in a 45-minute lift line and wait patiently after that? You know, I think when I got out of it, you know, I spent 15 years straight doing it. You know, I, I ate, slept, breathed the sport in Burton for, for so long and you know, when the sport changed, and this is dating yourself being an old codger, but when the whole hip-hop super wide 32-inch stance and pants hang to my knees and jibber whole scene came into snowboarding, I pretty much was over it at that point. 
because I'd worked my ass off to get on ski areas in the country. And, you know, we built the sport. So when things really turned around, my time was done. Like I was, I was done. I was over it. <laughs> I learned to telemark ski. <laughs> From the very beginning of lift access snowboarding, snowboarders had a reputation for challenging ski resort operators and staff. The rules and soulless technical side of skiing pushed the young generation of the time to rebel and learn to snowboard. Duck Boy was certainly no exception. You know, I mean, we were punks. Yeah, I mean, whatever. You get me and Palmer and Rankwit and freaking all those jack asses together at the same time. Yeah, there was definitely times where, where, where we uh, were less than gracious. But I would say when things became mainstream, I refused to play the don't you know who I used to be game. I buy snowboard equipment. I don't get free equipment. I could probably call Jake up today. I babysit his kids for years. I mean, I, I know Jake and Donna on, on, you know, I could go to the Burton party every year if I wanted to. But that was then, and, and this is now. And, and I just, you know, I love it. I'm beyond proud that I've got to be a part of it. Uh, it's not 100% my identity of who I am now. It's like it built me. And, and it created who I am. There's not a day doesn't go by that I use things that Craig taught me about business today to this day. But I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> you know, I got to experience it at that time and at that moment. And, you know, when I started going up and seeing 4,000 snowboarders at my local mountain and every ski shop and every mountain has a train park and everything, I mean, that's great. I'm glad to see the sport progress like that, but I don't want to ruin my memories of it. <laughs> How's that for an old man statement? That's classic. You know, I should say, you know what? You know, I'm just being an old crusty codger, and that's lame because they're getting a ride, and if they get experience it, and when we started, that's all we ever wanted was, was an opportunity to ride and, and that feeling. So in some senses, I guess I shouldn't be that old man yelling at the young kids, you know, for their music being too loud and their freaking rap music and, you know, but, uh, you know, good, good for them. I mean, I'm happy to see where it was. I mean, I get a smile and say, yeah, you know, you don't even know. You, they're a little young snowboard brat. You have no idea because I've ridden with the best. I, the kid you watched on TV win all those gold medals, yeah, I've helped him tie his boots on, yeah. If you take what you love and you make it your job, there's no quicker way to ruin it. I, I refuse to work in the fly fishing industry because I love it too much, and I don't want to ruin that. <laughs> For so long, I didn't want to see a snowboard. You couldn't have paid me to get on a snowboard. Like I said, I learned, I learned to telemark ski so I could be a rookie again and I could go out there and crash all day and, and laugh about it. You know, I've ridden so many days compared to most people in so many crappy conditions that unless it's like bluebird sky and 30 inches of new snow and I got a free lift ticket, I'm probably not that motivated to go. <laughs> I, I hate to be that much of a of a baby about it, but... You know, I don't get enough days off anymore to, I'm not surely not going to go up and ride in the fog in refrozen, crusty, crap snow. That's not going to happen for $70 of lift tickets. That's not going to happen for me. But I'm also not going to call up my old, my old ski area and tell them, don't, don't you know who I used to be and you should give me a free ticket? And, and, and I'm not going to do that either. So, <laughs> like I said, I feel very honored to be a part of the crowd that I was. I look very fondly back at you know, my heroes, Evan and Chuck and Tom and Jake and Terry Kidwell. I mean, like, those were the guys, man. Like, I remember those days watching all the old skate videos and Animal Chin and, 
you know, the, the Pal Peralta days, you know, I mean, that was there I grew up in. So, you know, I, I look very calmly and I'm very proud to have been a part of it. You know, it's, it's a good thing. And of course, I had to ask about Brushy. Brushy was an East Coast rider. So for a long time, he was, he, he just, you know, like I remember we were catboarding somewhere in Montana. It was like pristine conditions. And I remember calling on the radio and I'm like, Brushy, where are you? You know, we're catch the next cat. You know, it's killer. The snow's so great. And it was like, rub a dub dub. I'm in the hot tub. He was like, had no desire to like go ride with us. He was like already in the hot tub, like for the day. It was classic Brushy, you know? If you want to see Keith Duckboy Wallace shredding in his heyday, watch the original Burton Chill movie. It's awesome, complete with Burton-themed songs and Brushy's famous rap. It's one of the best. I asked Keith about filming for Chill. We filmed so much and got an opportunity to ride so many days. If I watched it now, I'm sure I would be able to be like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that day, you know, and where we were and, and the circumstances. That's probably one of the fun things for me is being able to look back and and remember where we were and what mountain that was and what the circumstances around that trip were. Um, but offhand, I can't remember which one it was. I'd have to look. I'd have to be watching it. Thanks, Keith Duckboy Wallace, for doing an interview for our show. And thanks for your years of dedication to snowboarding. Be sure to come back and join us next week for another episode of the Effenrad Snowboarding Podcast brought to you by BR Productions.